Today we're continuing our series in 1 Peter by looking at 1 Peter 3, 17 through 4, 6. Uh, I want to go immediately to the text today. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to read from your Bible. If you do not have your Bible, then you can follow along on the screen behind me. I'll read, you follow along as I do. Here's what we find. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through who also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God awaited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. So I expect that a couple of those verses really jumped out when we read these, uh, this passage, because there are some interesting, and perhaps you might even say strange things, referenced in these verses. And so I've decided to start today by considering a few challenging verses in this text first, before we then consider the larger thoughts and points that we should take from this section of scripture. The challenging verses are chapter 3 verses 19 and 20 and chapter 4 verse 6. We're told in 3, 19 and 20 that Christ was put to death in the body but made alive by the Spirit, quote, through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. And then we're told in chapter 4, verse 6, that, quote, the gospel was preached to those who are now dead. And so let's begin with 4, 6. That's the easier of the two, so let's start with the easy one and work up. What does it mean that the gospel was preached to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body but live according to God in regard to to the spirit. When you combine that verse with the, the next ones that we'll look at, 3, 19, and 20, this can leave the impression that the gospel was preached to deceased people. But that is not the case, as that is clearly inconsistent. 
with the teaching of the rest of the Bible. It does not fit the context of the passage, which is about the perseverance of believers. The way we should understand chapter 4 and verse 6 is as referencing people to whom the gospel was preached while they were still alive on the earth and who believed on the Lord while they were still living but have since died. Since hearing and believing the gospel, those people died, which is why Peter refers to them as those who are now dead, and they did so after having suffered for doing good, and in some cases even being martyred. They are people, according to verse 6, that were judged according to men in regard to the body, which can simply mean that they were subject to bodily death the way that all men are, or it can mean that they were condemned to death by wicked men, martyred, can mean either one of those things, and it's likely that it means both of those things. And so while they were people who were judged according to men in regard to the body, they are also people who live according to God in regard to the spirit. That is, that even though they have bodily died, they now live with Christ, their spirits do, and their bodies will be raised to life at the resurrection, and they will live forever, spirit and body, with Christ. And so if you look at verse 4-6, wonder what's going on there. It is simply referring to people who heard and received the gospel while they were alive, but have since died bodily. And even though they've died bodily, their spirits are at this moment alive with Christ. And then we come to the more challenging, chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. And there are three main views on these two verses, two of which are consistent with the rest of Scripture and historic Orthodox Christian faith, and one that is not. Let's deal with the one that is not first. There are some who hold the view that the meaning of these verses is that between his death and resurrection, Christ descended into hell, or Hades, and offered a second chance at salvation to those who were in hell, with the spirits in prison referring to the unsaved dead. I don't have time to demonstrate all of this today, but that view is in direct conflict with other scriptures. It's also in direct conflict with other scriptures that we see even here in 1 Peter, and so we have to discard this view on biblical and theological grounds. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that one, other than just to acknowledge that some do hold that view. A second view of the meaning of these difficult verses is that the spirits in prison are fallen angels who were cast into hell to await the final judgment. And that between the death and resurrection, Christ went and declared his victory to these fallen angels. There's nothing in this view that is inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. It is an acceptable explanation for the meaning of these verses. It goes well with the theme of suffering ending in victory and glory that we see in this text and that I'll talk about here in a few minutes. But there's a third view that I think is, is the better, really the best view of these. And the third view understands the spirits in verse 19 as referring to the unsaved of Noah's day who did not heed the preaching of Noah and are now suffering judgment 
They are the spirits in prison. This view understands the reference to Christ preaching to the unsaved of Noah's day as meaning that Christ preached to the unsaved of Noah's day through Noah. Just like in the New Testament, Christ preached to the unsaved through Paul and Peter and all who were ambassadors of Christ and ministers of reconciliation. And just like today, Christ preaches through all of us who have accepted the responsibility to be ambassadors for Christ and ministers of reconciliation. You see this idea at work in 2 Corinthians 5 where we're told that as we share the message of reconciliation, it is though God is making his appeal through us. So back then, God was making his appeal by the Spirit through Noah. Now, in some ways, this third view seems like the most complicated of the views. But the context and thought flow of 1 Peter suggest that this is the best understanding of 3, 19, and 20. Here's what Thomas Schreiner, uh, here's how he explains it. The context indicates that Christ was preaching through Noah, who was in a persecuted minority, and God saved Noah, which is similar to the situation in Peter's time. Christ is now preaching the gospel through Peter and his readers, who are a persecuted minority, and God will save them. And so the context and the theme of persevering through suffering and mistreatment suggests that this third view is the best one. Peter is using the example from the time of Noah as an encouragement for the believers to whom he's writing. So let's keep these understandings of these two problem passages in mind as we turn our attention to some key messages we should take from this section of scripture. But before we do that, we have one other thing that I feel like we need to address just because it kind of begs being addressed when you read through uh, this passage. I want to acknowledge this reference to water baptism that we find in verse 21. It references baptism as the pledge, or you could think of it as the response of a good conscience toward God. By the way, last week, if you were here, you know that we baptized five people. We baptized five people who responded in obedience to God and identified themselves with Christ's death and resurrection, who symbolically buried the old person that they used to be, symbolically rose to new life as new creations in Jesus. I am thankful for those people that we baptized. Uh, four of them were uh, children that I assume are in children's ministry today. Uh, one of them was John Moffat, who's in service today, and we're happy for John. Let's give John a hand uh, and rejoice with him over his baptism. Now, there are some interesting things to talk about baptism from verse 21, uh, but you just can't cover everything today. And so here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. If, if you're intrigued by what you see in verse 21 about baptism, dig a little deeper on your own, okay? Dig a little deeper on your own. Get a good commentary, uh, get a good study Bible, and, and just do some research on uh, what uh, this reference to baptism means, what all you can take from it. If you need help finding resources for that, ask me. I'll be happy to point you in some good directions. So with all of that, Let's turn our attention to some of the key messages we should take from 3.17 through 4.6. Here is an important key message. It was relevant then. It's relevant today. Like Christ, 
Christians must be willing to embrace suffering. Like Christ, Christians must be willing to embrace suffering. The very first verse we read, verse 17, it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. If you have walked with the Lord for any period of time, you have found out that the plan of God sometimes involves difficulty coming to your life even when you're doing your absolute best to do good. Anybody notice that? Yeah, a few of you have. And when it does, when that happens, shrinking back from it, running from it, resenting it, responding angrily to it, none of that does any good. What we need to do instead is embrace it. Embrace it. Accept that this is part of the deal. I hope you won't mind me sharing from my own life today, but I can testify to the reality of God's will coming with a good deal of difficulty. God's will for my life has been, I think, and continues to be, I think, being a pastor. And I can tell you that following the will of God for my life has brought countless heartaches to me and my family that we would not have had if not for trying to be faithful to God in that specific way. And I'm well aware that everyone's path has its own unique heartaches. I understand that, but I'm sharing my experience now. And I can tell you that I could have avoided a lot of the heartaches that have visited me and my family over the past nearly 20 years, not all, but many, and I would go so far as to say most, by just one different decision, not being a pastor. If you feel bad for me, good, I have achieved my purpose here today. My address is 429 Eliezer Wolcott Court for the cards that you would like to send. <laughs> that, is not my, that is not what I'm after here today. But here's the deal. As long as I continue to believe that this is God's will for me, I have no other choice but to embrace the difficulty and the challenges, and the heartaches that come with being obedient to God's will for my life. How has God's will for your life brought you difficulty, challenge, perhaps you could even legitimately say it has brought actual suffering to your life? Many of you here today can point to ways that that has happened. I would say that all of you that have walked faithfully with the Lord, you could point to ways that doing so, being obedient to God's call on your life, God's claim on your life, has brought difficulty to you. I just offer a simple encouragement to myself and to all of you. If you know that whatever God 
has called you to do that he really has, if you remain convinced of that, whatever the source is bringing you difficulty, but if you know that God has called you to that thing, I encourage you to embrace it, embrace the suffering, embrace the difficulty, continue to be faithful to God in spite of that. As Christians, we have to be willing to embrace difficulty, mistreatment, suffering for the cause of Christ. We have to. We have to. We were never promised an easy path. In fact, one day, Jesus was surrounded by people who were considering the possibility of following him. And he didn't say, hey, if you'd like to get in touch for your real purpose for your life, if you'd like to, to have more happiness and if you'd like everything to be better in your life, would you raise your hand? Not what he said. He said, hey, everybody that's considering following me, let me just tell you what it's going to mean. You're going to have to take up your cross every day to follow me. Now, we think of a cross as sort of like just a burden that we need to bear. But they lived in a culture where people died on crosses all the time. And so they understood what Jesus was saying is if you are going to follow me, you are going to have to die. Die to yourself. And in some cases, you may literally be asked to die. If we're going to be faithful to God, we have to be people who reject the idea that everything in life has to be perfect, that the blessing of God means that rose petals line our path. We have to reject that. And we have to be willing to embrace a path of suffering. And Christ is our example in this. We're told it's better to suffer for doing good than doing evil if it is God's will. And then verse 18 says, for Christ died for sins once for all. So we're using, uh, Peter's using Jesus now as, the, as an example of suffering. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Chapter 4, verse 1, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude that he had. How do we endure and embrace suffering? We look to Jesus. We see his example of suffering for the will of God, of suffering and even dying for us to bring us to God. We look at his example. He was righteous, we are not. He did not deserve death, we did and do. The righteous one died for the unrighteous to bring us to God. He suffered for us. We look to Christ to embrace suffering for the will of God and for the salvation of all of us and we arm ourselves with the same attitude Christ had because Christ did it for us we now embrace suffering for the cause of God and for the good of others. 
And verse 4.1 shows us something really encouraging. Since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with that same attitude because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he doesn't live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. And then verses 3 and 4 go on and share how not participating in the sins of the world causes the world to heap abuse on believers. Now, these verses do not mean that when we embrace the attitude of Christ and embrace suffering that we never sin again, but I think they do mean that when we resist the pull of the world, when we resist the temptation that life has to always be great, everything has to always be going our way, the bank account always has to be full, everybody always has to tell us how wonderful we are, when we embrace thinking that that's how life is supposed to be, when we reject the enticements of the world in favor of embracing the will of God and the sufferings of Christ, when we make godly decisions that the world does not understand and in many cases invites the world's abuse, we do break sin's control over our lives. One commentator describes it this way, when believers are willing to suffer, the nerve center of sin is severed in their lives. I think it's a great thought. When believers are willing to suffer, the nerve center of sin is severed in their lives. When we realize that embracing suffering for doing good is a key theme in these verses, it makes sense why Peter references Noah. Because Noah is an example of suffering for doing good. He was doing the will of God, warning people in, of his day of impending judgment. He was doing the will of God in building an ark that would keep people safe during the flood. Hebrews 11.7 says that by faith Noah built the ark and by faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. 2 Peter 2.5 says that God protected Noah and refers to him as a preacher of righteousness. He was protected during a time when the world was so wicked that God destroyed the whole thing by flood. Now, if you haven't read the account of Noah in a while, you may think that the account in Genesis tells us a lot about the abuse that Noah endured, but it actually does not. That's just something our filling in the gaps of the story have, in large part, uh, told us. But these scripture references do suggest to us that Noah suffered for doing good. And just understanding the task that he took on, we understand that this could not have happened without great difficulty and suffering. A preacher of righteousness in a wicked age is going to suffer. Someone building an ark for an event that's never happened before and never happened since is going to suffer. My goodness, just building the thing, I think, would count as suffering. Can you imagine being given that task? I, I, I didn't do any research on what tools were available in Noah's day, but I'm pretty confident they aren't the tools we have now. I'm glad Noah was there, because if God had told some of us to build an ark, whoo! Not sure how that would have worked out. 
So just in our text, we come to understand that Noah, the preacher of righteousness, suffered for doing the will of God. We know the apostle Peter suffered for doing the will of God. And of course, our greatest example is Christ himself, who suffered for doing the will of God. Followers of God, Christians must be willing to embrace suffering. And I'm concerned about us, honestly. I'm really concerned about us. I'm concerned about myself. Not, not just you, I'm concerned about me. And this idea of embracing suffering. Do you realize we have lived throughout my entire lifetime in a way that the vast majority of humans throughout all of history, everywhere on the globe, cannot relate to. The ease. I, I mean, I know life's tough, but materially, the ease that we have, the relative safety that we live within, most everyone who has ever lived in all of history would look at our experience and be like, oh my gosh, I wish I could have lived when those people live. Look at that. They say they're stressed out, but they just sit in front of that square thing like 18 hours a week. How can you be stressed? They haven't once had to climb up a tree to try to pick an apple. I haven't seen one of them foraging for food. I'm worried about us. I'm worried about us. We have to be willing to embrace suffering. And that means, as we've already seen in 4.1, that we must arm ourselves with Christ's attitude towards suffering. And so let's consider a few verses from other parts of the New Testament that I think reveal to us how we can have Christ's attitude towards suffering, or at least start to work to get there, okay? And we can apply this to some of the things that we experience now, but I think, friends, that down the road, we, we really may face a lot worse stuff than we can sort of think of right now. And so we need to start working on this now in the, in the relative calm that we experience. Apply it to the areas of mistreatment and difficulty and suffering that we experience now in anticipation of greater of that coming down the road. And so we need to work on this. So let's consider a few of these verses. Hebrews 12, 2 and 3. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, Get that, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. How did Christ endure the cross? He did it by focusing not so much on the cross but on the joy that was beyond the cross. By knowing what was beyond the suffering. 
and as we endure opposition for the cause of Christ, or as we just endure the difficulty that comes with being a, a human being in the world, we are to do the same. Focus on the joy ahead rather than the present suffering. We're to be people who remember that suffering just lasts, as the, I think the song says, for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Like Christ, we remember what lies ahead so that we do not grow weary and lose heart. Romans 8, 17 lets us know that if we are God's children, then we are his heirs. And that if we share in his sufferings, then we will also share in his glory. So we have Christ's attitude by looking beyond the suffering and looking to the glory that is coming in the future. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. For our light and momentary troubles. I would venture to say, Paul, when he wrote this, and the Christians of that time were facing troubles that we cannot relate to. Our troubles are much lower than their troubles, at least the specific troubles for the cause of Christ. We still face the same things, you know, disease, problems in our body. We, we face all that like they did. But for the cause of Christ, I would say that their experience was at a completely different place than ours is in terms of the trouble that they were experiencing. And yet, Paul describes it as our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen, the trouble we're experiencing, that's temporary. But what is unseen, the glory that's coming, that's eternal. And so we arm ourselves with the attitude of Christ towards suffering by realizing that the troubles in this life are actually achieving something for us. They're achieving an eternal glory that outweighs the trouble. Really makes the trouble look like nothing in comparison. And so we look beyond the trouble to the things we have not yet experienced, but we know are coming. Eternal life with Christ. And so like Christ, we have to be willing to embrace suffering for doing good, to do the will of God. We have to arm ourselves with Christ's attitude toward suffering. And, and what we've seen here in these verses is that we can have that attitude by coming to this conviction, this conviction, which is our sure hope. Suffering ends, leads to, Eternal victory and glory. That's what's at the end of the path. For every believer, however difficult your path, either just because of the problems that are common to all men, or how difficult your path because of specific persecution that may come to you for the cause of Christ, however difficult the path, at the end of that path, Every believer sees their suffering 
end in eternal victory and glory. Chapter 3, verse 21 and 22 tells us of Christ's victory and glory. It lets us know that we're saved, quote, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Think of what it's saying here. Think of what it's saying. He, he, he died for us to bring us to God. Evil men put him to death, suffering. But what's his reality now? His reality now is that he's at the right hand of God and all angels, authorities, and powers answer to him and are subject to him. His suffering ended in eternal victory and glory. Christ the victor. All things in submission to him. Chapter 4 verse 5 tells us of Christ's victory and glory. It tells us that all people, quote, will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Jesus was unjustly tried and condemned to death. He died an excruciating death by crucifixion for my sins and your sins. But then he rose to life, victorious over sin, death, and the grave. And now, and now, he stands ready to judge the living and the dead. Those who killed him now stand before him, ready to be judged by him. Christ went through suffering knowing the eternal victory and glory that was on the other side of the suffering. And when we embrace Christ's suffering, we get to share in his victory. 4.6 says that those who are judged according to men in the body still live according to God in regard to the Spirit. Here's what this lets us know. It lets us know that when the worst that can happen to us does, even when we have suffered defeat and bodily death overtakes us, even then we share in Christ's victory over death and the grave. Because even then, we still live according to God in regard to the Spirit. To be absent from the body is to be present with Christ, the Apostle Paul said. We share in Christ's suffering, and we also share in his victory. Romans 8.18, again, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Friends, I appeal to us today to embrace and be willing to endure suffering. Because on the other side of it, for everyone who perseveres until the end, on the other side of it, awaits eternal victory and glory, the eternal victory and glory of Jesus Christ that he allows us to share in. And so whatever is troubling you today, 
whatever the source of your unique challenges and difficulties and mistreatments, and perhaps even some of you here today can honestly say that you are in a period where you are truly suffering. Whatever it is you're going through, whatever the difficulties and the sufferings, embrace them and endure them, knowing that on the other side of those things, you get to share in Christ's eternal victory and glory. There's a song that we sang a lot in the churches that I grew up in, and if I thought ahead more, I may have asked the team to sing this song today, but I didn't think of it, so you'll just have to deal with me saying it. I won't make you listen to me sing it. But the words of the song go like this. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. Just one glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So let us run this race till we see Christ. Are you looking forward to that day? Embrace the suffering, friends. It leads to eternal victory and glory. Let's stand. 